Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Don't worry, you don't need the handout. Okay. <laughs> There's not going to be a quiz. How you doing? All right. You're still here. That's a win. That's not easy, huh? <clears throat> so I want to talk a little bit tonight about this uh, this path, path that these practices come from. Uh, talk a little bit about the four Brahma Viharas, the focus of this retreat, how it fits in the kind of overarching picture. And then I want to just offer some some general comments about retreat and some pointers and advice on this kind of experience that might be very new to some of us. So 2,600 years ago in ancient India and South Asia, a man by the name of Siddhartha Gautama uh, left the palace. He was a prince in a warrior clan and uh, in search of enlightenment. And uh, after six years of very strenuous uh, practice, really pushing himself to the limits of what's possible as human beings, starving himself, not sleeping, really, really engaging in pretty intense austerities, um, he discovered uh, what's known as the middle path between the extremes of indulgence in sensory pleasure and self-mortification, denying the body, trying to disconnect from our corporeal reality. And about six years after he set out on his journey, uh, he had such a profound and earth-shattering realization that it's brought all of us together into this room over 2,000 years later. It's affected billions of people across all continents on the planet for over two millennia. And he taught. He taught for about 45 years after he was awakened, wandered around northern India. If you've ever visited South Asia today, you can imagine what it must have been like over 2,000 years ago. It's pretty rough terrain. of The kinds of amenities we're used to here in, in the West. And he taught a path of practice that's about a way of life a way of life that's designed to support the kinds of transformative and liberating insights that freed his heart and mind from the confusion, the fear, the anxiety, and the suffering that seems to be kind of inseparably interwoven with our lives as human beings. So this path that he taught can be understood in a lot of different ways. One of the most basic summaries of it 
is um, that we practice living in a way that is ethically sensitive to other living creatures, learning how to live with integrity, a life of non-harming. This is the foundation of the path. This creates a certain inner atmosphere in our heart and mind, free of remorse and regret, connected with our own value and dignity, seeing the goodness in our hearts when we're not causing harm. And from that foundation of well-being, Uh, The Buddha taught to train the mind through meditation, cultivating wise effort, concentration, mindfulness. And it's the cultivation of these qualities, particularly of mindfulness and concentration, that lead to the third part of the path, which is uh, the realization of wisdom, sometimes referred to as liberating insight, understanding the nature of what it is to be human in a way that transforms our understanding of life, allows us to stop adding extra suffering to things that are already difficult. So within the kind of part of the path that's about meditation practice, the meditation practices from the early Buddhist tradition can be understood or kind of grouped in two or three different categories. There are practices that are designed to settle and collect our mind and body. These are called concentration practices. What we've been doing today, following the breath, paying attention to the walking, these have in common that we just choose one thing and we keep coming back to it and we put everything else aside. And over time, the repetition of coming back to that one thing over and over and over again in a very simple, patient, and gentle but firm way has an effect. It starts to settle the mind, gather and collect our energies. There's a whole set of practices that are concentration practices. There's another set of practices that sometimes you could call a subset of those that are about healing and strengthening the heart, cultivating beautiful qualities in the heart and the mind, and healing the the wounds, the hurts, the brokenness that so many of us carry just from being alive and living through the challenges of what it is to be human. And then the third category of practices are insight practices. Practices that are designed to help us see clearly the nature of being alive and what it is to be human, to understand who and what we are on a more profound and deep level in a way that frees our hearts and that helps us to realize our full potential in this life, to use all of the gifts and energy and resources that we have at our disposal to help others. So all of these different kinds of practices, the concentration practices, the healing practices, the insight practices, all of them will be present in different ways to different degrees this week. They're not really separate, even though you can focus on one or the other. Our, um, our aim, of course, is cultivating these four qualities 
known as the Brahma Viharas, which I'll say more about in a little bit, in the service of steadying the heart, healing the heart, coming back into wholeness. These practices that we're sharing with you also happen to be concentration practices, practices that, that collect and gather all of our energy and attention. And the, the way these work is that they're based on a fundamental property of the human mind, which is that our minds are malleable. They're not fixed. They can be shaped and reshaped and molded through repeated experience. This is something that the Buddha discovered many, many hundreds of years ago that has been kind of rediscovered and proven in modern times through neuroscience. So today it's known as Hebsian neuroplasticity. Uh, um, kind of catchphrase that Donald Hebs uh, came up with that's become quite popular is neurons that fire together wire together. Okay, so This is the malleability of the mind. Whatever we practice, whatever we do with our minds, we get better at. The Buddha put it this way. He said, whatever the mind frequently thinks upon and ponders, that will become its inclination. So if we go about our lives thinking only of ourselves, wanting things for ourselves, comparing ourselves to other, others, we're going to get really good at being selfish and greedy and comparing. If we go about our lives feeling stressed and agitated and frustrated and trying to force things, we're going to develop that habit of being stressed and agitated and always trying to push and force things. And of course, if we practice, say, being patient, being kind or generous every day, guess what? We get really good at being patient and kind and generous. It becomes the inclination of our mind. Uh, another teacher in our tradition, a friend of mine, Greg Scharf, uh, some of you may know Greg, um, he had the good fortune of meeting uh, Mahagosananda, who was a um, Cambodian monk and elder in the Theravada tradition. He was known as the, the Gandhi of Cambodia. Uh, so during the, um, the, the reign of, the, of Pol Pot in Cambodia, where there was a civil war and horrific murder going on, um, he would go on peace walks through the villages and um, knock on the doors of uh, families and um, speak to the families and tell them, you know, tell, tell your sons to put down their rifles and kill the hate in their heart. He would go to the refugee camps and chant the Metta Sutta, teach, teach the Dhamma. And he had a very, very long uh, and beautiful life as, a, as an activist. Um, speaking to the UN uh, in service of um, international agreements to stop using landmines, which uh, destroyed the countryside in Cambodia after the war. Anyway, he, he lived out the last years of his life um, in western Massachusetts, not far from the Insight Meditation Society, where I did a lot of my practice earlier in my life, uh, at a peace pagoda. And um, anyone could go and visit him there. 
I never had the chance to meet him, but my friend Greg did and would go and visit him. And uh, apparently towards the end of Mahagosananda's life, he suffered from dementia. Was not didn't have all of his faculties there. But Greg would, would uh, share, you know, he would go in to see Mahagosananda and he would just be beaming, just so happy and loving. And he would always, he would just try to give everything away. Anything he had, he would give him shampoo and soap. and Because he had cultivated his heart and mind to such a degree that all that was left was kindness and generosity and love. Inspiring, isn't it? This is how the Dalai Lama put it. If we were aware that we all contain love within us and that we can foster and develop it, we would certainly give it far more attention than we do. So this is the foundation of these practices, that we can actually cultivate these qualities through what we do with our mind. So within this arc of different meditation practices, um, mindfulness practice works in a different way than metta and these other Brahma-vihara practices we'll be sharing with you. So mindfulness is a, a curious and open attention. It's an awareness that is unbiased. It's not distorted by our preferences or our past experiences. It's able to be fresh and and be intimate with life in a very direct way. So mindfulness practice within vipassana, insight meditation, is the engine of transformation. It's what what kind of guides us on the path to begin to steady the mind, develop concentration, and start to see more clearly, to develop insight. So as we cultivate mindfulness and concentration, as the mind stabilizes and begin to see more clearly in insight meditation, we start to be able to tell the difference between the stories we tell ourselves and the way things actually are on more and more profound levels. Carrie was talking about this earlier today in the Q&A. Everything from like simple stories like, I can't do this, I'm no good at this, they don't like me, to much, much more deeply rooted stories like who I am, what's possible for me, what's the past or the future. There's different thoughts, perceptions that structure our reality. We start to be able to see through them, to differentiate between the conceptual overlays that structure our world and and the pure immediacy of what is. And then the nature of things starts to reveal itself. It's not something new that comes into being. It's just that we start to see more clearly what's always been here that we haven't been able to see because we've been so blinded by all of our ideas. 
Now, metta practice and the other brahma-viharas, compassion, joy, equanimity, they work in a different way. So while mindfulness helps us to see clearly the difference between our stories and narrative and what's actually happening, the brahma-viharas shift the underlying story of our life. They transform the narrative and the fundamental basis from which we're living from one of separation, isolation, or alienation, to one of connection, longing, and intimacy. This is, uh, this is from Mother Teresa, from her book, In the Heart of the World. She said, there's so much suffering in the world, very much. There's material suffering. There's suffering from hunger, from homelessness, from all kinds of disease. But still, I think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is, that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. That's the level at which these practices work, our, our sense of belonging in this world. One of the first metta retreats I sat, I was about 23 years old, so a little over 20 years ago, I was at the Insight Meditation Society, and I had just... Um, come out of an experience that was very isolating. I was serving as a assistant on a study abroad program, and um, there was just a lot of interpersonal tensions in the group. And the way things unfolded, um, the director and I kind of got scapegoated. And you know how this can happen in a group yeah, when there's tension. It really just shook me, and I felt terrible about myself after the program, like there was something wrong with me and no one liked me. And we get to the metta retreat and teachers start giving instructions. And one of the traditional ways that the Brahma Viharas are practiced, we'll begin tomorrow, uh, is through the, the silent repetition of certain phrases. May I be well, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I live with ease, may you be well, like that. They're getting the instructions, and I just froze up. I was just like, I can't do this. This is not okay, <laughs> you know? And um, the first meeting I had with one of the teachers, I just broke down crying. I said, I, I can't wish myself well. I feel so terrible about who I am. Like, is it really okay for me to wish myself well? So these practices work at, at the level of our relationship with ourself, with others, and with life. And they're healing, they're transformative. It takes time. It happens slowly. But I can tell you, as can all of us here, that they work.
We do. There are many benefits to this uh, suite of practices that I'll talk more about in a moment. Um, They transform the inner atmosphere of our heart and mind from one of often ill will directed to oneself to one of goodwill. We feel like we have a, a, a warm companion here rather than a harsh tyrant putting us down all the time. It's said that they can liberate the mind. It's called liberation through the beautiful, beautiful states of mind because um, when, the, when the heart is connected with these states, it doesn't move into hostility, cruelty, envy, reactivity. We free the heart from those afflictive states by saturating it so deeply with love and gladness, compassion, balance. And in the process of practicing, we develop a certain kind of resilience, certain skill in being able to see ourselves and others more clearly, to meet adversity with a lighter heart, with more grace. Fundamentally, they can transform the basis from which we meet our life. Instead of coming from a place of fear, reactivity, expecting the worst, we come from a place of goodwill, of just basic kindness towards others, towards ourselves. And this in and of itself is uh, deeply nourishing and freeing. So what are these Brahma-viharas? So the word Brahma in Pali and Sanskrit, two ancient languages that are related, that the uh, teachings were preserved in in the Pali language, which is connected to Sanskrit. Brahma means uh, heavenly or divine. Really, really, really good. (laughs) The best. Vihara. Vihara means monastery. Or just more simply, home, a dwelling place. Sometimes it's translated as abode. So you'll hear these referred to as the heavenly abodes. Sharon likes to call them our best home. I love that. Our best home. Right? And we all know what it's like to feel at home, to be home. Yeah. We feel comfortable, at ease. We don't have to put on any airs. We can relax. We might not stay there all the time, but we always come back there. We know how to find our way back. So these four qualities, love, compassion, joy or gladness, and equanimity, balance, are like our best home. And they're said to be um, noble qualities of the heart because they they deepen our spiritual maturity. They kind of lead us onward in the path. So I want to say just a couple words about each of them, and we'll go into much more detail over the course of the week. I touched on them last night, and I'll say a little bit more now. So metta, loving kindness, uh, unconditional friendliness, uh, Christina Feldman uses the phrase unhesitating kindness. 
like that. Unhesitating kindness. This is the default orientation of the heart when it's free from uh, its constrictions and confusions. And, and metta is about seeing the good in others and ourself. That's one of the causes of the arising of metta, is seeing the goodness. So each of these qualities can be understood as a particular mind state, uh, as an intention. So it's not necessarily a feeling. It's more of an orientation, an, an intention, a way of approaching things, and also a way of seeing. So metta sees the good. And this isn't, um, this is not like a sentimental, sappy, fluffy quality. It's a very strong and stable quality. Uh, in his sermon, his famous sermon, Loving Your Enemies, Dr. King said, Love is the most durable power in the world, it is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. So it doesn't mean being a doormat, letting people walk all over you, being nice all the time. It means that we're connected to the fullness of our heart, the dignity of what it is to be human, and a profound sense of connection to ourselves, others, and our place in the world. Compassion is the loving heart turned towards suffering. It attunes to, it notices the vulnerability of others. And as it does so, it embraces that suffering. It's willing to be present with pain rather than to recoil in fear or disgust. Rather than trying to separate ourselves from suffering or trying to take over and fix it and make it go away because we can't tolerate it able to just be right there with it and then offer, see if we can help. Compassion is about embracing, being with suffering without pulling away, without falling in, with a willingness to help, a readiness to see what's needed. The word for compassion in Pali, karuna, is connected to the word karma, which means action. They have the same root. Compassion is also something that we do. It's a willingness to act. Mudita, appreciative joy, sympathetic joy. This is the loving heart turned towards the happiness of others. Dalai Lama likes to say, when you count others' happiness as your own, your chances for happiness increase by 7 billion to 1. Very intelligent, intelligent emotional state. Equanimity sees the changes of life, the ups and downs in a world of change, and it, it widens, gets bigger, has perspective, able to stay balanced in the midst of change and challenge and loss and gain and joy and sorrow. As I said last night, all four of these are related. They're not separate. They're just different facets of the heart. It's like which facet is turned forward at any given moment. Yeah, 
but they're all connected. And as, uh, as I think you'll begin to see for yourself in different ways, they balance and support each other. Joy balances compassion. Equanimity purifies all of them in different ways. So we'll go into this more over the course of the week. There's an image that um, a friend and colleague of ours, Jill Shepard, likes to use. I'm not sure if it's hers or if she picked it up from another teacher to describe the four Brahma Viharas. She she says, if you picture a diamond, then you can think about uh, metta at the top, love, kindness at the top, and then compassion and appreciative joy on the two sides meeting the suffering of others, meeting the happiness of others, and equanimity down at the bottom, kind of balancing all of them, all connected like that. You're a visual learner. Hold that image in your mind. See if that helps kind of connect them. So each of these qualities can be cultivated on its own through a distinct practice. Sometimes also they're practiced all through the vehicle of metta. So just practicing metta, the others are cultivated naturally alongside it. So this week we'll spend a couple of days practicing metta tomorrow and the next day, really just settling into the the form of the practice, which if you haven't done before can be a little bit well, I'm not gonna say what it can be like. <laughs> Um, but sometimes it takes some getting used to. Um, and then from there, we'll introduce some of the other practices for the other qualities so you can get a taste for them and see you know, how those are for you. The Brahma Viharas are also sometimes talked about as the immeasurables or the boundless qualities. And there are a few ways of understanding this. They're called immeasurable uh, in one way, because they don't, when they're, when they're um, in their pure state, when it's like uh, last night I was talking about the musical analogy, right, of not being sharp or flat, having like a tuning fork. So when they're in tune, they don't measure or compare. It's not like, I'll love you a little bit more because I like you better than you. They don't do that. They just radiate. Impartial. This is one of the qualities of these Brahma-viharas. They don't pick and choose. It's like it's said that metta is like a gentle rain. and When it rains, the rain falls on all the ground. It doesn't just rain over here and not over They're said to be immeasurable also um, because they, they can have a boundless quality to them. Part of the practice is beginning to dissolve the boundaries in our own hearts that separate us from others. And what's meant by this is not uh, dissolving the healthy boundaries, like not being able to set limits and so forth in our life, but the way that we see ourselves as separate from one another. And there's the potential for these qualities to open into altered states of consciousness that are boundless. 
they're also said to be immeasurable because the benefit and the impact of them can't be measured. One moment of kindness can save someone's life. One smile. One cup of tea with a friend. They're measureless. A moment of kindness can nourish our heart for a lifetime. So this is what we'll be exploring this week. What a gift, huh? So retreat, silent meditation retreat is its own kind of ride. And uh, it's always different every time, no matter how long you've been doing it. There are certain threads that run through the practice that are helpful to bear in mind, certain things that will be supportive to you, certain themes. So one theme is balance. We're always working with balance in this practice. So for example, earlier today, Bruni and Carrie talked about the balance of our posture, balancing these qualities of relaxation on the one hand and energy, vitality on the other. So these are two very, very kind of fundamental energies that we're always balancing in meditation practice, learning to balance calm, tranquility, ease, and relaxation with a sense of interest, energy, wakefulness. When these are not in balance, we might feel really sleepy and lethargic or really restless and buzzy. We balance effort trying to stay connected, diligent, engaged, without striving, without pushing, but also without kind of just being totally collapsed. We balance our effort. Another theme that runs through the practice and retreat is the development of concentration. This word concentration is uh, kind of an unfortunate word in... um, in English, because it often carries a lot of connotations that are not helpful for the meditation practice. Like, think about, like, what, what do you think of when you think of concentrating? Yeah, that, right? Like, really, really, really try hard. <laughs> so the word in Pali is samadhi, which literally means put together or collected. So, so samadhi is a state of um, ease and collectedness. It's probably cl- most closely related to what we would call uh, being in the zone. It's a very natural state that arises because we're interested, because we want to be here. Right? Like if you're having a conversation with a friend and you're really engaged, you don't have to try hard to stay focused. You're just right there because you care and you're interested and you're paying attention. Or if you're reading a really good story or working on an art project or something, all of your faculties come together 
and stay connected. So this is another um, strength that will be cultivated through the practice over the course of the week. There's a sense of being non-distracted. It's the opposite of being scattered. Collected, stable, and there's a sense of ease. So you might you might hear us saying things like rest your attention with the breath or with your body. It's that sense of of ease that supports collectedness of mind. One other um, theme that will run through the week, a good thing to bear in mind is a kind of gentle persistence. A patient, gentle persistence. Just coming back again and again and again. So one of the secrets of this practice is that continuity is the recipe for progress, for deepening the practice. Just showing up again and again and trying to make it continuous. Going slowly, don't rush. So these are some of the um, strengths and themes that you can come back to, rely on during the retreat. And there are also certain challenges that are very common that come up during the retreat. So how many people felt restless today at some point? How many people felt bored? And people felt sleepy or tired, right? So these are just some of the ups and downs that are just part of the ride. Try not to make it mean anything. It's very common. We, we come to a meditation retreat, and like I was saying last night, we remove all of the stimulation of our lives And very quickly, our mind starts to realize there's nothing to do here. (laughs) There must be something I'm supposed to be doing. I know. I'll find something to do. I'll plan the next trip I'm going to take. Or I'll figure out what I'm going to say to that person when I see them next week. Right? And we start planning and going through everything because there must be something that I should be doing now. Or the opposite. We come to sit, we're sitting, there's nothing to do, nothing to do. Must be time to go to sleep, right? Because we're still and quiet, there's nothing to do. So um, none of that's a problem. It's, It's just part of the process. As Carrie was giving some good tips earlier today to try to balance your energy, you know, Breathe in a little bit more deeply if you're feeling sleepy. Open your eyes, stand up. If you're feeling restless, focus on your out-breath. Open up to sound. Let things be big so you have some space inside. Do some walking. It will start to settle out on its own after a couple days. So try to just give yourself time to, to ride some of those bumps. What can be more of a problem Um, are believing some of the stories that we tell ourselves about how we're doing or what should be happening. So stories like, I'm not doing it right, or I can't do it, or look how peaceful everyone else is. I'm the only one who's sitting here miserable with my 
aching back or my ankle pain or knee pain, feeling like a failure. Or if I have to sit through one more minute of fill in the blank. Or how about, oh God, six more days of this? It's just a thought. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone two minutes from now. Let's just be on the lookout for the stories your mind is telling about what's happening, how certain things can feel about the future. Another thing to watch out for uh, there can be this way that we're continually evaluating our experience, comparing, trying to perform, uh, gauging against some idea we have about how the retreat's supposed to be, whether it's based on the last retreat we had, well, this time on day one last time, or maybe just the projection we created about what the retreat would be like. I remember uh, one of my first meditation teachers in, uh, in India, a man by the name of uh, Anagarika Manindraji. I went to spend some time with him uh, in my early 20s. And uh, he noticed that I was doing this, that I was kind of continually sort of comparing and checking my practice. And <laughs> in a very loving way, he chided me, he said, uh, he said, you're, it's like you're walking and you take one step and you stop and you look and you say, did I take a step? Am I walking? Am I on the path? He said, just practice. <laughs> you know, stop checking every moment to see how you're doing. It's, it's common to come to a retreat like this with certain expectations. Right? We might be looking for some healing, some resolution. We might be wanting some kind of big experience, some opening, love, bliss, joy, you know, and instead my back hurts and my knee hurts and I'm falling asleep and I feel bored and frustrated and I can't stand the way the guy behind me breathes. And <laughs> so there's that, that sort of folk wisdom phrase you've maybe heard expectation is premeditated misery. If you have some expectations about what's supposed to happen this week, as much as possible, try to just put those aside. Or if you can't put them aside, just hold them lightly. This, uh, this practice is different from therapy. We're not here to analyze ourselves or, you know, once and for all fix our personality so that we're finally likable. And different insights and shifts do come naturally, uh, but they don't come through wanting them. They don't come through trying to figure something out, uh, analyzing it, or trying to get somewhere. They arise from being present and doing the practice. They unfold on their own. The key to this practice is that it's not about what happens. It's not about getting something or having a special experience. It's really about 
learning about how we're relating to what's happening. It's a very different kind of energy. We're not trying to create something or make anything happen. We're trying to study and learn about how the mind works. It's like, it's like a craft or an art. It's like learning an instrument. It takes time and patience, a certain, a certain lightheartedness, and a certain love, a certain love of the music, of the art, of the practice. So as much as possible, just do the practice. Instead of checking every five minutes, am I more loving? Am I kinder? You don't have to be a Buddhist. You don't have to adopt a belief system. Um, you don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to bow like we do. It's our way of showing respect and gratitude to our teachers and the lineage. You do you, but do the practice. Just show up, do the best you can, and then let go. Run the experiment. And then a week from now, you can look back and evaluate. Say, well, was it worth it? What did I learn? So perhaps the most important moment in this practice is what happens when you notice that the mind has drifted away. That's the chance we have to practice letting go and beginning again in a different way. That one moment when we notice the mind has wandered, that's the, that's the moment we have the power to start to transform some of the underlying habits in the mind of judging ourselves, of struggling, of reinforcing some story of how we're a failure and will never amount to anything, of striving, of pushing of sinking in despair or wallowing. Instead, we can just let go and begin again with a friendly attitude. Oh, great, we're back. Let's keep going. All right, we're here. Every moment that you can do that, you're planting very powerful seeds in the soil of your consciousness. Seeds of resilience, of kindness, of patience, of determination. So letting go and beginning again is, is the engine of transformation in metta practice and the Brahma Viharas. And remember, you can't fail at this because what matters isn't what happens. It's not what comes up or what we experience, but how we relate to it. So it's the power of your intention that transforms. It's what you bring to each moment that has the potential to heal and transform our hearts and minds and ultimately to free us. The willingness to be here, just to show up and to meet life on its own terms. The willingness to begin again a thousand, thousand times with gentleness, the intention to be kind rather than to judge. And through all of this, we deepen our sense of presence, 
balance and slowly shift our relationship to ourselves and to life. I think I want to end with um, a poem that I wrote many years ago. Uh, after, it was a few years after that retreat I mentioned, where I was crying to the teacher, asking if it was actually okay to wish myself well. I wrote this poem um, when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society, working there as a cook. Uh, after the first um, long intensive retreat I sat, which was a three-month meditation course, it's called How to Care. This morning I awoke with a lonely friend who had forgotten his soul and could not remember where to find it again. His eyes would not meet mine. His face was tight and hard. The forest will forgive you, I told him. She will take you in her tender, gnarled arms and hold all, because she knows that you will soon be gone. The forest will forgive you, I told him. She will listen and your thoughts will fall like quiet flakes upon her snowy, open palms. Go. Walk. Listen with your feet, and hear how your steps are part of her voice. She will always take you back, because to her you have never left. She will rejoice in your slow and pensive steps as you wonder, how could I have traveled so far from this again? And she will tremble as you kneel at her feet where trunk meets soil, where root emerges from leaf and needle. She will tremble as you touch your forehead to the creased skin of her old brown face and with a deep sigh smile as you remember something good, vanilla, the weight of an old blanket, her hand placed gently upon your cheek. With a deep sigh, you will remember Smile and tell her thank you. With a deep sigh, you will remember. My friend nodded, stood slowly, and began again. So let's just sit together for a moment. Just letting the words settle, coming back to the simplicity of your own body. The immediacy of this moment. 
and trusting that everything you need to know is already inside you. Thank you so much for your kind listening, friends. So we have a little time for some walking in the beautiful night air. And um, I want to make a little plug for the last sit. If you're tired, we'll keep it short tonight. We'll do a little bit of chanting. Okay? I'll see you in a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.